0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them this evening to Amos 8. The true fruit of spiritual rebellion. Throughout the course of the book of Amos, we have been considering the various judgments levied upon a nation for their pride and for their rebellion. These judgments have primarily centered around the promise of captivity, a promise which would, at this point in history, be only about 70 years or so from fulfillment. And throughout, we have considered our own relationship to these prophecies, recognizing that we are not under the old covenant. The promises of direct judgment are not ours, at least not through captivity, as were in the days of Israel, but also acknowledging throughout the series that there is coming a day when we will be judged, where we will all be measured against the plumb line of God's truth, where our works will be judged. And as we talked about this morning, those works will be judged not necessarily on the basis of of the work itself, but as believers, it will be judged on the basis of whether or not we did those works in faith, right? And, And that will redound either to reward or unto loss, Now, today we come to a different promise of judgment, and uh, what I would say, in in some senses, is the true judgment, the true fruit of spiritual rebellion. Yes, we've seen all of the the things that are going to happen physically uh, to the nation, and yes, we've been able to apply those things to our hearts in in some way, but tonight's lesson is one that spans every generation, that where there is spiritual rebellion, the the fruit that we're going to see tonight is indeed the fruit of that spiritual rebellion, the fruit of that rejection of the revealed Word of God. And we find these promises toward the end of Amos 8, and we're going to get there, but we're not there yet. We're going to start, of course, at the beginning and walk through Amos 8. We will get through the whole chapter this evening. So in verses 1 through 3 of Amos 8, the Bible says this. There we go. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he that would be the Lord said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, The end is come upon my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith the Lord God. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. So we come to another vision. The latter half of Amos has not been as much declarations of judgment as it has been God showing Amos visions. Naturally, in Amos chapter 7, as we saw, we saw those three visions and Amos pleading for mercy, God showing that mercy, but saying that plumb line would drop. And then, of course, the second half, seeing Amos interact with that priest of Bethel, Amaziah, and recognizing the, the, the charge and the attributes of the truth teller last week through that passage. And in this case, God shows Amos a basket of what is called here summer fruit. This is a very similar idea to the vision that he saw, the first vision that Amos saw in Amos 7, the vision of the grasshoppers that were eating the latter harvest after the king's mowing. The basket of summer fruit would indicate something near the final gathering of the harvest for the year. So we think of that idea of the grasshoppers eating the second harvest of the year or the second gleanings. And then we see this idea of a basket of summer fruit. And we observe in these chapters a prophetic theme. The latter growth, the latter harvest, God is showing Amos the end of a thing. And that is the the idea that Amos recognizes through these visions that Israel is coming to the end of a thing, specifically to their end. And it is not uncommon, prophetically, for a final judgment to be pictured by a harvest. In fact, it is even possible that the entire Hebrew feast system which centers around planting and harvesting, is a reflection of God's prophetic program. Now, this is an interpolation or an interpretation, but I'd like to introduce you to this if you've never uh, kind of considered this thought this evening. It's a thought that um, is... Um, one that we draw, that we can draw based upon the fact that we have a dispensational system of looking at the Scriptures. Uh, various other interpretive systems of the Bible would not see this pattern necessarily or would not see it consistent, uh, but, but we would see it consistent with what we have learned as it relates to the nature of how it is that we interpret the Scriptures. There are seven feasts that God has established in the law for the Jews to observe. Now, there are certainly many more than these seven feasts as it relates to Jewish, Jewish holidays and Jewish uh, um, feasts throughout the years. But as it relates to that which is established in the law, there are seven feasts and they are primarily broken up into three units, three general time frames of those feasts. The Jewish men were required to travel to the tabernacle or the temple for the three primary feast times of the year. Namely, they were required to travel there for Passover, for Pentecost, and for tabernacles. And these are divided into the spring feasts and the fall feasts, with a significant gap of time between the spring feasts, which were in the first and third months of the year, and the fall feasts, which were in the seventh month of the year, year, based upon the religious calendar. The religious calendar, the first month of the year is Nisan, In the uh, civil calendar, the first month of the year, would actually be that seventh month of Tishri. And so Passover was a single-day feast on the 14th day of the first month of the religious calendar, This is the sixth month. Again, the six-month difference from the civil calendar. So on the 14th day of that month, Passover would take place. And it existed to remember the day that the Lord passed over the houses of Egypt that were under the blood of the Lamb, leading to the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. This was followed by a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, from the 15th to the 21st day of the month. It was a time of consecration unto the Lord, expressed by ensuring that there was no leaven in their houses. Leaven being a picture throughout the scriptures of a it it was a fermenting agent, it is a fermenting agent, but it would be a picture thus of uh, a taint or a corruption or a sin. So leaven has always been a picture in the scriptures as a general rule of sin. Uh, There are other uses of the picture of leaven. Simply to mean uh, a, a, an influence uh, upon others a, as it would stand, but that's the generalized idea of leaven in the picture of Scripture. And then the third feast in this first cluster of feasts is called first fruits designated to be on the day after the Sabbath following the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, there's some debate about exactly what that would mean. Uh, There's a couple of different um, ideas as to whether or not it was actually on the 16th day of that first month or whether it would carry over uh, a little bit further. But for sake of um, simplicity, I'll put it on the 16th day of that first month there. And the people of Israel were commanded to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of the barley harvest and to wave it before the Lord on that day. In doing so, this was a dedication of the first of much more to come, according to the Lord's blessing. And so that, the, those three, first three feasts uh, comprise kind of the first feast period in the religious year for the nation of Israel. After this, there would be 50 days or seven weeks after Passover, and that would bring the next feast in line, a feast called Pentecost or harvest or weeks, uh, depending on where you're looking in the Scriptures. And this is still a a feast very much in the spring, in in the beginning of the third month, 50 days after the Passover. And the Bible tells us that the Exodus... From Egypt, or it tells us in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, that God gave the people the law on the third new moon after the Exodus. Three new moons would be three months. That would be in that month, Sivan, and the nation came unto Sinai. Thus, it is believed, at least by tradition, that the day of Pentecost is generally the day that God gave to the nation the law or at least the day that they, that they entered into that covenant with God on Mount Sinai. Now, after the Feast of Pentecost, there's a notable gap in the timeline of feasts. And the final cluster of feasts comes at the harvest. The culmination of the year, of the harvest year, the, it begins with this idea of a firstfruits and it ends with an idea of Harvest. And that's what I'm pointing you to this evening, is that even within the Jewish religious system, we see there a beginning and an ending, and the ending is signified by this time of harvest. Things would initiate with the Feast of Trumpets. That would be uh, heralding in this, uh, this month or, or the, 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 the days in the fall of, of the feasts. It was intended to call the people to assemble to a meeting with the Lord in preparation for the coming Day of Atonement. Then on the tenth day of the seventh month, there would be that Day of Atonement in which the nation would afflict their souls for their sin. There would be the uh, national uh, atonement for sin. That is when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and offer uh, the blood onto the mercy seat. And then finally, there would be the Feast of Tabernacles. Very similar to Passover, And unleavened bread, this feast was a seven plus one feast, a seven days and then one extra day format to signify the end of the harvest and a rejoicing over God's abundance toward them. And of course, as I said, it is this feast that I would point to prophetically as helping us see that God oftentimes uses the picture of the harvest to reflect the end of a thing, in the same way that the Jewish religious year ended with a feast of harvest. Now, I introduce this system to you in the context of prophecy because there is good reason, at least within our interpretive system, to see the entire Old Testament feast system as, in fact, prophetic. The first cluster of feasts, beginning with an innocent lamb that was slain, and ending with the first fruits. And in this, we might see God, and we know that Jesus died on the day of Passover, right? God unfolding the prophetic reality of Jesus' death as the lamb that was slain to take away the sin of the world. That when God sees the blood, he would pass over those who were under the blood of the lamb. And then His burial and His days in the grave is the time when our Savior pronounced His victory, ending with the resurrection, which is the first fruits of our own resurrection. So that the first cluster of feasts is a very fitting picture of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I don't think anyone debates that. And now we know from Scriptures, without question or controversy as well, that it was on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that the Spirit of God fell upon the 120 in the upper room, and this mystery age that we are living in now, which is called the church, the age of grace, began. And it is fitting that the new covenant would come into full effect, perhaps even on the very day that the old covenant had been ratified so many days, so many years prior. And so, as we look at the feast system, we see a a system where the first cluster of feasts is very much so reflective of the reality of what happened through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And then we see that second feast, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Pentecost, uh, to be prophetically significant as it relates to the day that the Spirit of God fell upon the 120 in the upper room, and we would say the church began. And perhaps it is then not uh, too hard of a leap for us to see in the third cluster of feasts some prophetic significance as well. That there is a gap, a significant gap, between the fulfilling of the first two great feast times and the final one. We know that this gap exists in Scripture prophetically as well. This gap is prophesied in Daniel 9 where following Messiah being cut off, following those 483 years of prophetic um, consistency, the Bible says Messiah would then be cut off. And then we see an initiation of a final seven years of which we have yet to see in history. To this day, since the advent of the church, this has been about 2,000 years since the events of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and the advent of the church 50 days later. And throughout this time, we are busy about the work of the Lord while we await the reinitiation of His prophetic program in Israel as prophesied in Daniel 9. The culmination of God's final uh, prophetic plan. The end, the harvest, if you will. So prophecy tells us that this plan will initiate that the second coming will be heralded by the last trump. This trump indicating that the end has come, followed by a time whereby the nation of Israel is afflicted and mourns for their sins. And then finally, God will, as we recently studied in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, promised throughout the whole Old Testament, however, we'll talk about that next week in Amos 9, God will finally redeem the nation of Israel, gather them to Himself, and thus Israel being brought in at the last, the final harvest of the righteous through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, again, I say that this is nowhere taught directly in Scripture. It is inferred as a a part of us recognizing the themes and the patterns of Scripture. We certainly see the pattern as it relates to the Passover and to the first fruits. We can certainly see the pattern as it relates to Pentecost, And I would not be surprised if in the day of the Lord reinitiating his program, it will be quite clear to see the pattern of the fall feasts as well. And if it is, in fact, prophetic, then this goes right in line with what we find here in the book of Amos, that God is showing Amos pictures of these final harvests of, these, of, of the end of the, the growing season as a reflection of what God is about to do in Israel as he brings them to their end. And so Amos sees this basket of summer fruit and the Lord asks him, what do you see? To which Amos naturally answers, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord then gives the reality of this prophetic vision. He says, the end of the people of Israel is come. God will not pass by them anymore. And he specifically says that there at the end of verse 2, I will not again pass by them anymore. Now, we don't know how long it has been since Amos 7, but do recall what God said in Amos 7 when we considered the vision of the plumb line in verse 8. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. So God promised at the time of Amos seeing those visions in Amos 7, where he pleaded for God for mercy and God showed that mercy, he promised and he said, I will give mercy today, but there's coming a day where I will not pass by them. And we see the reality of this prophecy come to fulfillment or this promise come to fulfillment in Amos 8 when God says the end has come upon the people of Israel and I will not pass by them any more. Now, we don't know, like I said, how long it was between Amos 7 and Amos 8. Maybe it was a short time. Maybe it was a long time. But God is now determined to judge. God is now determined not to pass by them again. And he says in that day, the songs of the temples would be howling and dead bodies would be in every place. We would presume, and we'll talk about this again next week, that this would not be the temple of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is not in the crosshairs here at this point, we would presume that this is Amos probably standing in that same area in Bethel where Amaziah told him, you need to be quiet and stop prophesying here. And Amos gets up and he says that he saw another vision. And in that vision, God says the end has come. He saw a vision of, the, of, of a basket of summer fruit. The end, the harvest is ready to, it's, it's ripe for harvest, the harvest of God's judgment. And he says the temple will be, in the temple will be songs of howling. And we're going to see next week that that temple will, in fact, be destroyed. Probably the temple at Bethel. Continuing then, verses 4 through 10. Amos says, Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even that make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, make an ephah small, and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall not the land tremble for this, and everyone mourn that dwelleth therein? And it shall rise up holy as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth by in the clear day, and I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation, and I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head, and I will make it as the mourning of an only son, and the end thereof as a bitter day. So Amos directs this message specifically to those in Israel who were oppressing the poor. And we do see once again here a direct reference. Very similar to the first six chapters, we see Amos here uh, saying, thus saith the Lord to the nation of Israel. He's no longer uh, narrating the visions that he has seen. He's no longer ver- uh, narrating his interactions with others. He is once again proclaiming the word of the Lord, speaking to the unjust in the land, to those, he says, that swallow up the needy, uh, to those who couldn't wait for the Sabbath to be over so that they could get back to their injustices and deceits to those who were walking, living in this uh, place of religion, this place of, of some measure of moral conformity, but had never actually conformed their heart to the word of the Lord. So that while they lived out these religious sensibilities, they were simply waiting for the moment when, the, when that, day, that day of religious devotion was over so that they could go back to living the way they wanted to. We've heard this, uh, you've perhaps heard people uh, d- describe this in our culture before as well. The idea of living like an angel on Sundays and living like the devil the rest of the week. It is not uncommon among the religious to live that way, that they put on an entirely different face. They put on their their, their church face for Sunday and they go to church and they live in that pious manner. And then throughout the rest of the week, they uh, do whatever they desire. I remember a roommate that I had in college who um, was from Nigeria, and he described uh, many of the churches in Nigeria uh, that, that, that he had attended and were interacting with in that way. He would say that, that uh, throughout the week, they would effectively do whatever they want, live in sin, live in uh, uh, um, uh, greed, live in licentiousness, but they would never, ever dare do any of those things on Sunday because Sunday was not the day for those things. That kind of a disconnect whereby by the word of God, we'd say no day is a day for those things, right? There's no day for those things because we are followers of the true and living God. We, we, we don't live a double life. This, this is the, the, the follower of Jesus Christ is one whose life and whose essence is following Jesus Christ. We don't turn it on and turn it off. We can't turn it on and turn it off. Now, we can ignore it. And live in the chastening that that brings, but we can't turn it on and turn it off because it is the essence of who we are. It is our identity. It's not a hat that we put on on Sundays. But Amos is speaking to people who did exactly that. That on the Sabbath day, they put on the hat and they wore the hat. They wore that hat of piety and religious devotion waiting until that day could be over so that they could go back to their deceit, so that they could go back to their injustice, so they could go back to their oppression of the poor. And to them, God says that he swears by the excellency of Jacob. Now, my natural thought here is to believe that God is swearing by Himself, that God is, in fact, the excellency of Jacob. And oftentimes God will swear by Himself. He says, I will swear by myself, and then He'll give some, some uh, promise. And He cannot swear by anything higher than Himself. So to swear by Himself would be this idea, uh, and, and it's something God does regularly throughout the Old Testament, that He is giving the highest level of promise possible. But this isn't really how God uses that phrase, actually, biblically, the excellency of Jacob. The word excellency is used 45 times in our Old Testament, and it can speak of the idea of majesty or of greatness. And we see the concept that God does call himself, in that sense, the excellency of Jacob. But there's another meaning of this word, and the meaning of this word can also be pride. In fact, Hosea 5, verse 5, and Hosea 7, verse 10, in in both of those verses, this exact phrase is rendered, the pride of Jacob. And this might actually be a better way to think of the phrase here in Amos chapter 8. We also saw uh, this phrase in Amos chapter 6, and it's actually that the, the use of the phrase in Amos 6, as well as the use of the phrase in Hosea, that lends me to believe that 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 the idea here is significantly more pride than it is um, the, the, the concept of, of God being the excellency or the majesty of Jacob. In Amos chapter 6, verse 8, God said to them, I abhor the excellency of Jacob. Now we know that God does not abhor himself, nor would God ever need to abhor the excellency of Jacob if he were referencing himself there. However, if, if this idea is the same as reflected in Hosea, the pride of Jacob, well, that would make good sense, wouldn't it? That that is the thing that God abhors. And of course, here in Amos chapter eight verse seven, God swears by the excellency of Jacob that he would never forget their works. Obviously, again, God does not abhor himself, but God would certainly abhor the pride of Jacob. God would certainly be able to swear that by the pride of Jacob, he will not forget their works, the works of abominations before him. And when we come to something like that, we recognize that uh, the, the, the King James translation is actually, it's not a, a bad translation here. The idea of excellency or majesty is a perfectly fine translation of the word, but we would also uh, believe that That doesn't necessarily mean that every choice that the King James translators made is the right choice for any given word in the Old Testament. And I think here the word pride, as reflected in in Hosea, makes a bit more sense within the context. So God promises never to forget their works. And He says that for this the land would tremble and the land would mourn. Because on that day, on the day that God places that plumb line next to Israel, They're in trouble. God describes this day as one when the nation would be drowned by a flood like Egypt in their day. The idea there would be the Exodus. That as the nation of Israel passed through the Red Sea and then following them passing through the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his armies followed Israel into the Red Sea and the Lord allowed those waters to fall and to crash in on the nation of Egypt and to destroy the armies. God says He would do the same thing to them, that he would just, that they would be drowned by a flood like Egypt in their day. That when the sun would go down at noon and darkness would cover the earth, when feasts would be turned to mourning and lamentation, all of these pictures of mourning and of destruction and of sorrow Not all promises in the literal sense, but in the metaphorical sense. There would not actually be a flood that would overcome Israel, right? We do not necessarily have a record of the sun being darkened in this day in any of the prophetic writings of the last days of the nation of Israel before Assyria destroyed them. And yet these are pictures of a nation in distress and in a nation of sorrow. God calling it a bitter day. And we would say, well, yeah, that's judgment, all right. That's, that's what happens when a nation, when a people, when a culture, when an individual rejects the word of the Lord. There is, there, there is consequences upon that nation or that culture or that people for rejecting the word of the Lord. And, and that's, that's true judgment, and, and that's true. But as the prophecy continues, it takes a very interesting turn. And this is what I actually want us to focus on this evening. Beginning in verse 11, the Bible says this Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. In that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. They that swear by the sins of Samaria, and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth. Even they shall fall and never rise up again. So God prophesies a different type of famine here. God promises a different type of judgment. You know, there's this tendency among a certain subset of unbelievers to carry this idea that says when they hear things related to the gospel and to uh, the promise of judgment that is to come, well, I understand that and maybe there's coming a day when I'll repent, but for today, today's not that day, right? I'll do it later on. I'll I'll do it when I'm older. I'll do it after I've had my fun or whatever the case may be. And we often talk about the fact that... uh, in, in the sense that Jesus uh, gives it, Thou fool, thou knowest not that tonight thy life will be required of thee. Right? That a man who says, I will eat and drink and be merry, not knowing, he will, he will invest in this life, not knowing that that very evening his life would be taken. But there's another danger to us rejecting the word of the Lord. There's another danger of me looking at the things that I know the Lord would have me to do and passing by them and saying, well, things are okay right now. Uh, I know that I'm doing wrong, but maybe I'll address that wrong. Maybe I'll repent uh, a little bit later, in another month, in another year, uh, maybe in another season of life. Uh, the, the, The truth will still be there at that time. And maybe at that time I'll repent. But see, we see a second judgment here. And the judgment that we find is not just a judgment that says there will be destruction for your sin. That's still 70 years off. But God also says, I'm going to send another judgment. He says, I'm going to send another famine. He says, the famine I'm going to send is the hearing of the word of the Lord. See, we recognize from the word of God that it is the Spirit of God that teaches, right? which means that unless the Spirit of God illuminate a man to the truths of God's Word, uh, there is no hope of that man to understand the truths of God's Word. We recognize this to be true. Now, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So we fully understand that when Jesus promises in John 16 that when the Spirit of God comes, the Comforter comes, He will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment that, that the Spirit of God is busy about the work of convicting the hearts of all men for sin. But then when we read various other scriptures, such as when Paul says that he has given men up to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, when we read scriptures like Amos, where God says there's coming a day where I will send a famine of the word of God, we find that it is not necessarily the Lord's prerogative. God is under no obligation. Once he has given men the word of God and illuminated their hearts unto it, to continue to illumine their hearts. God is no uh, under no obligation to continue to pursue a man who has rejected him, and when at once the Lord sees fit to cease to pursue a man, cease to illuminate his heart, to allow that man's heart to fall into darkness without further introducing the light of truth to him, when that judgment falls upon the heart of a man or a society or a culture or a people, well, there's nothing left for them, is there? So God says he would send a famine, not of bread or of thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. That in consistency with their absolute rejection of that which God had given them, there was coming a day when God would stop pursuing them where he would stop sending the prophets to tell them, where he would stop bringing the word of God to their mind through his spirit, where he would stop reminding them. And in that day, even if they sought it, they would not find the word of the Lord. God describes this day as a day when they would wander from sea to sea, from north to east, to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they cannot find it. And in that day, God's people would faint for thirst, for the need for God's word. And they would realize what they had and lost in God. Because there was coming a day when they would have it no longer. And to this, of course, we know the ending. That though there would be this famine, God says that in the latter years he would restore them. We'll talk about that in Amos 9 next week. But what God promises in his silence, in many ways, is far more terrible than what God promised in captivity. Separation from God. When God stops pursuing a man... When God gives that man up, it's far more terrible than simply judgment on this earth. And with that, we apply this evening three thoughts from Amos 8. Thought number one, famine of the Word of God is a judgment upon a wicked people. I might actually reconfigure this if I were to write it again. Famine of the Word of God is a judgment upon a people who reject the Word of God. Because I don't want us to think that this is just for wicked people in the sense of those who do morally abhorrent things. Certainly, a famine of the Word of God rests upon them as well. But as I've mentioned and alluded to already, perhaps the Lord has been knocking on the door of your heart for some time as it relates to some biblical truths. Maybe it's humility. Maybe it's obedience. Maybe it's sanctification. Maybe it's submission. And as He's been knocking on the door of your heart, you have uh, faithfully resisted him in his efforts to call you unto himself. And God is so faithful. He's so faithful to call. He's so faithful to knock. But there's nothing in the Word of God that demands that God has to keep knocking forever. And to whatever degree we find those physical judgments in the pages of the Old Testament. And even to whatever degree we may or may not attribute God's judgment today of various physical problems in our societies might experience uh, to God. Some people will attribute the increases that we would see in various natural disasters or whatever the case may be uh, to God in in the more formal sense. And that's fine. Scriptures don't tell us one way or another. We can't really know one way or the other. But one thing is important for us to understand is that one of the greatest judgments that God can levy upon any person or culture or society is a famine of the Word of God. That when a culture or a person has rejected the light of God and the truths of God's Word, and God sees fit to stop pursuing, to stop sending His messengers, to abandon that culture, to abandon that individual, to abandon that family to its fate. And we see several instances of this in Jesus' commission of the gospel. When a culture rejects the word of the Lord, the Lord might just see fit to stop pursuing them. Remember in Matthew 13, when Jesus returned to his own city of Nazareth. We read these words in verses 53 to 58. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence, and when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. So he comes back to his own country. He teaches in his own synagogue, and so much that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Notice what happens here. Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. He is heralded as the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus begins his ministry, and as we look at at the the nature of Jesus' ministry, we find that he was far more successful in Galilee than he was necessarily in Judea. And so as he is working uh, and and commissioning and uh, doing the early elements of his ministry, he goes back to his own country, to his own people, to his own house. And he teaches them in their synagogue. And he does many wonderful works. And he says many wise things. And the people are astonished. They do not deny that he's saying many wise things. Nor do they deny the mighty works that he is accomplishing. But because he is so well known to them, they're not really interested in listening to him. The old adage says, familiarity breeds contempt. Right? And that's exactly what we see here. That because they were so familiar with Jesus, they were not interested in hearing his wise words and they were not even necessarily impressed by his mighty works. They said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Don't we know his brothers? Aren't his sisters still with us to this day? They list off the names of his four brothers. And so they said, we're, we're not impressed. This, it's just Jesus. And they rejected his words. The Bible says that they were offended in him. Not by him. It wasn't the things that he said. They were offended in him. It was his identity. It was who he was. And so they would not listen to his words. And then verse 58 tells us, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Interesting, isn't it? See, we get this idea that Jesus did the mighty works in order that people might believe. And yet, the Bible tells us here that because of the unbelief of the people, Jesus did not do any mighty, many mighty works there. He did some, but not many. Why? Because it wasn't going to have any effect. Because their hearts were so cold, their hearts were so hardened, their hearts were so disinterested that it was not worth his time and effort to do the works there. He was restrained in his capacity to do the works that he might otherwise do because they have hardened their hearts. Has familiarity bred contempt in you, Christian? We are a church uh, that has a lot of second and third generation Christians in it. We have a lot of young people in this church. I always love a dinner on the grounds day. Uh, We had to keep putting out more and more tables today uh, because there's just kids everywhere, right? And there's just, there's there's a lot of kids. Um, Children, many of you have grown up with believing parents who love the Lord. You've grown up in churches where you have recognized uh, the the, the various rituals, the various actions, the various uh, deportment, the various... Um, conversations of those who claim Christ. Don't let your familiarity with the things of God bring contempt in you. Don't allow it to be that when God starts knocking on your heart and saying, you know what? Yeah, you look good and you know how to talk the talk and you know how to say the right things and you know how to do the right things and you know how to look the part. And you can put on that hat and you can look the Christian because you've done it since the day you were a wee one and your parents did it before you. Don't allow Jesus, don't allow the truth to just keep knocking. And you just say, well, I've gotten away with it this long. Maybe later I'll actually get consistent. But for now, my hypocrisy, the the the, the fakeness, the, the pretend it's working pretty well for me right now and everyone's fine and I'm fine and there's a lot of things to experience in this world and I'm looking forward to experiencing them. And I can just play both. I can play both sides of this for a little while. You don't know that. You don't know at what point that knock will stop. And the Lord will just allow you to drift into the darkness that you've already pointed yourself toward. You don't know, Christian. Which is why when that knock is there, we want to open. Don't allow familiarity to breed contempt. The city would experience a famine of the Word of God from that point on. Jesus would do no mighty works there. Because they rejected the word that had come unto them. And in a very real way, Jesus exhorted the same thing of his disciples. Matthew 10, a few chapters before this, when he commissioned his disciples to go, he said this, And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and thereby till ye go thence. And when ye come into an house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come on upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return unto you. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. God told his disciples, if you go into a city, and the idea of worthiness here is not moral worthiness. The idea of worthiness is people whose hearts are ready to hear truth. Jesus says when you go into a city, if there's someone there that will receive you, gladly step into their their fellowship and teach. But if there comes a day where there is none to receive you, you don't have to stay there banging that drum for no one to listen. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. And in that day, it will be, in the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who had the disciples of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at their door and they said, no, thank you. What kind of consequences, believer, when we, having the Spirit of God knocking on the door of our heart and we say, no, thank you. If they will not receive the word of the Lord, then let them receive a famine of that word and let them be judged for their rejection on the day of judgment. So we find that a famine of the word of God is a judgment upon the wicked. Famine of the word of God is a judgment upon those who, having heard the word of God, do not receive it. And this can offer us, of course, both a warning and a perspective. I've already given the warning primarily, but let's talk perspective. We live in a dark culture, and that darkness is the consequence of rejecting the light. Once God has shined the light, He is certainly under no obligation to continue to shine it. Now our God is long-suffering. He is gracious. The famine of the Word of God in Israel's day came hundreds of years after their rebellion began. But as we considered a couple of weeks ago, God's mercy does not exist for us to continue to sin. God's mercy exists to give us time to repent. Never forget that, Christian. Wonderful thing that God's mercy endures. But it is not there to give you time to sin. It is there to give you time to repent. You don't know when that knock will stop. Don't test him. It's not worth it. But here's the true terror of this judgment. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 14 How then shall they believe in him in whom they have not, uh, how then shall they call on him, excuse me, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How can a man believe if he's not heard? How can he hear if there's no one to tell? What happens then? When a person or a culture has heard the truth again and again, but has refused it to the point that God chooses no longer to send people to tell. In some ways, the preacher standing behind the pulpit might be a comfort to those who are in rebellion. Because every week the preacher gets up and he says the things of the Word of God and they feel as it's like a comfort blanket to them. There's always next week to respond. There's always next week to respond until there isn't any more. What happens when there's no one left to deliver the Word? What happens when God removes that man What darkness does a society fall into? What darkness does an individual heart fall into when at once God chooses to send a famine of his word? What hopelessness for that man unto whom God is no longer sending the light of his word? Because that man has rejected the light that he has been given. Second point. When I reject the light, I inherit darkness. When I reject life, I inherit death. When I reject pursuit, I inherit silence. And this point certainly does not just apply to the the, the believer or the unbeliever, does it, Christian? Every instance of rejection of light introduces some measure of darkness. Every instance of rejection of life introduces some death. Every instance of rejection of conviction introduces some silence. We're all familiar with the great gospel verse. We talked about Romans 1 through 4 this morning. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's a wonderful verse when we're sharing the gospel to highlight the consequence of sin in the life of those who are living in sin, those who have rejected the word of God, those who live in unbelief and so are condemned already. Sin brings death. And death in the Bible is the idea of separation from God. Yes, it, we, we recognize physical death, but physical death is a metaphor for a much deeper death, a much more potent death, and that is separation from God. And at the moment of that physical death, that is eternal separation. But when understood in context, we walked, we walked through chapters 1, 2, and 3 before hitting my point in chapter 4 this morning, specifically because Romans is so contextually important. In context, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2 are describing two different men, both of which are in trouble. One who has rejected the authority of God and so is living in all of the consequences of the fullness of sin. The other who is a moral man and who believes he can, through his self-righteousness, live in a state of rightness with God, both of whom will fail at their their, uh, uh, intended purpose because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. And then in Romans 4, Paul gives these examples of not by works, but by grace. And then in Romans 5, Paul puts it all together and speaks of the idea that God has declared all unrighteous, that he may have, that he may have mercy on all. And so Paul presents the reality of salvation by grace through faith in Romans 1 through 5. And then as I alluded to this morning, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul shifts gears. He goes to the next phase of his argument. He begins talking about what it means to live under grace. And so he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up again by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That is God's plan for those under grace. Paul's not talking anymore about how to be saved. That was Romans 1 through 5. Now Paul's talking about how to live life under grace. It's the very last verse in Romans 6 where we read. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I know I beat this drum quite often as it relates to this verse, but it's, be- it's because the church has been so conditioned to see this verse as a verse to unbelievers. But who is Paul writing to here, and in what place is this in the context of Romans? Paul is warning Christians here, the wages of sin is death. That even the believer, when he steps into a life of sin, when he introduces into his own life sin, sin brings separation. We're not talking about losing your salvation. We are talking about the thing that First John speaks of in full. We're talking about what Jesus called us to do in John 15. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. He began, John, by saying, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. He's talking to believers. He's talking to disciples. And then he says, but you've still got to abide. And when I introduce sin into my life, I am severing myself from the vine. I'm not abiding in him. And thus I have introduced into my life spiritual death, separation, not unto damnation, but unto loss of fellowship, loss of abiding, Grieving, quenching the Holy Spirit of God, and thus an incapacity to live out the fruit of the Spirit, to live by the grace by which I'm called to live. A fundamental break in fellowship by which man is no longer living in the light of truth, but rather in darkness. So that when we introduce sin into our lives willingly, what we introduce into our lives is darkness. We lose the capacity then, if we live into that darkness, if we harden our hearts, if we refuse to confess our sin knowing that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to reinitiate that relationship, to cleanse away the darkness and to reintegrate us into the light, to reintegrate us into the truth. And if we fail to do that and we instead harden our hearts and callous our hearts, we get deeper and deeper into the darkness. And we are always comforted in that place by the fact that we can look back and we can see the light. So that I say, okay, as long as I can see the light, then at, at the time of my choosing, I can turn back and walk toward the light. But what if God turns off that light? God's under no obligation to keep shining it into your heart. What if you lose all reference point and you fall deeper and deeper and deeper into that darkness? To where you can no longer even orient yourself rightly to the truth. Perhaps you've seen this before with family or friends. Perhaps you've seen someone you might think that uh, you, you you might believe that they are believers, or or maybe you're not sure if they're believers. But someone who had the light and who was walking in some measure of light, uh, who had a zeal for the Lord or a love for the Lord at one time, and then something happened. They started to drift. It's like they lost their perspective. They began to question things that the Bible states very clearly. They started to see the world through a lens that is foreign to what you find in the Scriptures. And you as a friend or a loved one said, this isn't right, this doesn't make sense. And maybe a pastor or church Family called out to them and said, This needs to stop. This is the wrong path. This is not the way to go. And they continue to drift. And then there comes a time where they're not even really recognizable compared to what they once were. What happened there? What happened is they stepped into a thought process, a sin process. God began knocking on their heart. Stop this. Repent. They didn't repent. They inherited some darkness. And in that darkness, they started walking away from the light. And as they walked further and further away from the light, they failed in their capacity to orient themselves properly to the world that is around them. They didn't see it. I often give the illustration when I was in high school. I was with my friend in a little boat on this little lake. His family had a property there, and, he and my friend and I went out, and we were casting uh, lines for fish that I don't even think were in the lake. I think his, it was just his, his dad's way of getting us, keeping us busy by fishing in a lake that had no fish in it. But one way or the other, we get a little too close to shore and the, the line gets caught. And so I'm on the, on the tiller and I, I get us a little closer to shore and then I, I stop. And we're, 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 we're sitting there and we're looking for the line and trying to get the line out. And his dad kept calling to me from shore you're drifting, you need to back up a little bit, you need to back further in the lake. And I I said, okay, uh, I I think think I'm okay. And he said, no, 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 you're drifting. And and I, I, I wasn't listening because I looked around and I said, I don't see it. I don't see a drift. I don't see myself drifting. See, he was standing in a stable place. And because he was able to orient himself to the stability of the dock that was not moving, he could orient himself to my drift. But because I was in the thing that was moving, I didn't see it. Uh, until the motor hit the rocks. <laughs> until the propeller hit the rocks. And then I realized I've been drifting. It's the same thing that can happen in our Christian lives. You start to drift. You have the people around you that say, "You know, this isn't this isn't right. You're drifting." You say, "No, no, no, I'm I'm I've not moved. I'm fine." And they show you the Word of God and you say, that's not, that's not really what that means or, or that's not that really that big of a deal or I can handle it, it's fine. But what you've actually done is you've inherited darkness. The Spirit of God begins to knock on your heart. The pastor brings a sermon. You read the Word of God one day and it strikes a chord at that thing in your life that you know you need to deal with. You say, maybe Tomorrow. How long before that propeller hits the rocks, though? God is faithful to call these men and women back through their church, through conviction, through chasing. He's faithful. But with every rejection, they move closer and closer to the day where God sees fit to give them a famine. When their Christian friends are no longer compelled to pursue them and to warn them, When the Word of God hits upon their stony hearts like a basketball against pavement and just bounces right off. And they end up in a place where they never should be, where they never needed to be, if only they had listened. But here's the thing. The wages of sin, Christian, is death every single time. We can't cheat the system. Be not deceived, Galatians 6 says. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Every time. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Mark it down. There's no way around it. It's an indelible principle built into the heavens themselves. You reap what you sow. Final warning. By wisdom, Christian, appreciate the light that you have been given in Christ. Don't take for granted the light that is in you, Christian. Don't take for granted the seasons of your life when the Word of God flows abundantly. Now, I say this in a couple of different ways. It is certainly our prerogative to stay supple and humble and listening to the Word of God. And that can be constant for the rest of our lives if we would choose it to be so through humility and repentance. But also, Christian, when you are in a season where God is doing a great work, live in that season. Love that season. There are times where you'll be tired, there are times where life will beat you down, there are times where difficulties will come. But don't take for granted those seasons of life where the word flows abundantly. We've already said, don't allow your familiarity to breed contempt. Young people, there's a lot of life to live. There's many truth claims out there. Many very compelling people and institutions claiming that their way is the way. But you have sat under the light. You have been taught in the light. By nature and by design, the attempts of Parents to protect you from the darkness has also incubated you from that darkness. And that means there's a whole world out there that you do not know of and do not yet understand. And as you grow, you will come to a greater or lesser degree to see and to know that world. And what you will find if you have the eyes to see it, if in that day you have not yet, you have not fully uh, rejected by wisdom the light that is within you, that you, if you still appreciate the light that you have been given in Christ, on that day you will see the world for what it is. But the grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? The heart always longs for that thing it doesn't have. And especially for that which is forbidden, going all the way back to Adam and Eve. And to whatever degree you are willing to accept the wisdom of the Word of God, to that degree you will be protected from the deeper implications of the consequences of the tragedy that the world is slouching into. So appreciate it, Christian. Appreciate the light that we have been given. Don't reject that light. Embrace that light. Live in that wisdom. The temptation will always be to wonder if maybe we are the fool. If maybe the path of the gospel, the claims of God's word, the nature of the Christian walk, maybe ours is the way of the fool. Solomon wondered the same thing in his day. God had given him all wisdom. And so he said... I'm going to test that wisdom. See if it's actually true. See, because there are other competing truth claims out there. Wisdom compels me to live in a manner that aligns with the Word of God. Wisdom compels me to say, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. But what about all these other truth claims? I want to test them. And so he tested them. So he built monuments. He, built, I mean, he made instruments. He hired musicians. He sought unto alcohol. He sought unto women. He sought um, unto every form of making his name great. And he realized, through it all, the wisdom and light of God's word and God's way. And many others have and will continue every day and every year. To see if the light which we claim comes from the truths of God's Word might also be found in the pages of other books. Might also be found in the ideas of other men. In the claims of other life choices. But if you can get a hold of wisdom, Christian, you can avoid the snares of those paths. Because wisdom will always come by one thing and one thing alone. It will always begin with the fear of God. And may each of us not fail to understand this. May each of us be careful that we do not fall into contempt for the light that we have been given. May each of us never come to the point where we are judged by God with a famine of the Word of God for our rejection of its precepts. And may we also never cease as long as God gives us the grace to do so, to be a part of the solution. Living God's word, proclaiming God's word, being the truth teller that we considered last week in Amos 7. Lest we, or even our culture, experience this judgment. The consequence that is the famine of God's word.